0: My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Welcome to half an hour of exciting new stories, brand new prose this week, beginning with a short story, very short story, called The Weird Spinny. There is something very weird about this spinny, but I have a toothache, so I'm oblivious to the weirdness. I have come to the spinny at the suggestion of my dentist... She is a so-called new dentist, one of a growing band of revolutionary tooth interventionists who've torn up the rule book. Go home, she said, ushering me out of her waiting room none too gently. Boil up a paste of sorghum, goat's milk and raspberry jam, sprinkle with hundreds and thousands, mould it into a Brazil nut-sized blob and tuck it into a tiny muslin bag tied at the top with butcher's string. Go to the weird spinny and put the bag on the ground near one of the beech or sycamore trees. Then go and conceal yourself behind shrubbery. In due time, a squirrel will come to get the bag to add to its winter store. Oh, I forgot to tell you to have your camera with you. Grab a snapshot of the squirrel as it frisks away with your bag of paste. When you have developed the photo, make it the centrepiece of a shrine in your living room. You may add to the shrine whatever festoonments take your fancy. Four times a day, prostrate yourself before the squirrel shrine and plead to have your toothache taken away. I have written down on this card the recommended form of words for your pleading. Now, off you go. And with that, she propelled me out into the street. Now, here I am in the weird spinny, and a squirrel has taken away the bag of paste I prepared exactly as my new dentist prescribed. I have taken the photograph, but rather than sprinting home, I'm somehow compelled to stay here, squatting in the shrubs. Perhaps that's why it's called the weird spinny because of this overpowering sense that I'm rooted to the spot, unable to leave, that somehow great peril is in store should I try to stride away across the heath to home. I take my portable metal tapping machine from my jacket pocket and try to make contact with my dentist, but all I'm able to receive are eerie howling noises like a mighty wind announcing the apocalypse. I'm about to try again when I notice that I'm surrounded by squirrels, hundreds upon hundreds of them, savage squirrels with sharpened claws, ghost squirrels from an unimaginable past, phantoms in a phantom spinney, and the aching in my tooth redoubles, and the sun is blotted out, and the sky is black. sky blotted out and the the sun blotted out and the sky black. We could do with that now, I think. We could do with that. I certainly could. It's unbearable, this heat. Anyway, who is the typical reader or listener of Hooting Yard? Um, I'm sure you know by now that all the texts that I read here can be found on the Hooting Yard website at hooting.yard.users.btopenworld.com. But anyway, I was wondering to myself, who is the typical reader of Hooting Yard? Anyway, I decided to find out. My initial thought was to do a reader's survey and subject the results to careful analysis. But instead, I employed a so-called consultant, a private detective named Zoltan Cuspidor. What attracted me to Zoltan was that he was cheap. He asked only that I keep him supplied with breakfast cereal and butcher's pencils. Indefatigable having had his skull trepanned, he never needed to sleep, and he was a man of limitless charm, no examples provided. We arranged to meet in a cow-strewn field during a thunderstorm, talked for over an hour, and later exchanged letters, which um, I'll read out to you. Dear Zoltan, I wrote, It was a great pleasure to meet you in a cow-strewn field during a thunderstorm, "'I'm looking forward to the results of your investigation. "'I enclose some vouchers which you can take to that kiosk near the baking soda factory "'and exchange for breakfast cereal and butcher's pencils. "'Let me know when you need to replenish your supplies.' "'Dear Frank,' he replied, "'Thank you for the vouchers. Already I have made great strides.' I am reluctant to divulge my methods, but you should be aware that they are sinister, perilous, hugely complicated, troubling, fiendish, unfailingly accurate and dastardly. Rest assured that not one of your readers will ever suspect that a clever piece of software I took the liberty of installing on your website sends an invisible pneumatic beam shooting out of the screen straight into their brains. I have much material to assess, and in fact my printer is still chugging out reams upon reams of neurodata. One finding you ought to be aware of is that mind map wizard Tony Buzan is not the typical hooting yard reader. Indeed, he does not appear to be a hooting yard reader at all, an anomaly even I find perplexing, but I'm sure I'll get to the bottom of it. At the beginning of May, Zoltan requested another meeting, this time at an abandoned ice rink. The ice had melted, and knots of bracken and bindweed were spreading over the site. There will be cows here soon, observed Zoltan, in whose beard I could see tads of special K, cocoa pops, and Kellogg's cornflakes. I handed him some more vouchers. I have news, he added. I was unreasonably excited by this, and began to jump about. The pneumatic brain beam software is clogged, said Zoltan. It's been completely clogged up for the past three weeks, and when it gets clogged, the data becomes contaminated and useless. I knew something was wrong when I tried a test, and the typical hooting yard reader profile came out as Ghanaian football hero John Pantzill. I know for a fact that he's never read a word of the site, as he's a confirmed Proustian with leanings towards Whittaker." "'Widdicombe?' I asked. "'As you can imagine, I was no longer jumping about. "'I was peering into the distance, "'watching as a few timid cows lumbered towards us, "'just as Zoltan had predicted. "'Anne Widicombe,' he said, "'also known as Doris Karloff, "'the combative Conservative Member of Parliament and sometime novelist. "'Her debut, The Clematis Tree, was well-received.' But it's not exactly what we would call a Dobsonian uber text. Anyway, fear not, I shall unclog that which is clogged and press on with my invaluable work. I just wanted to keep you informed. Oh, and thank you for the vouchers. That was the last time I saw Zoltan Cuspidor. A month later, I received another letter. Dear Frank, he wrote, Something happened when I unclogged the clogging that increased the effectiveness of my programme in unexpected ways. That's why I'm able to send you my definitive results so soon. You do not have just one typical reader, but a family of 18. This group is so homogenous that I cannot pluck one of them away from the others without bringing the whole house of cards crashing down, if you see what I mean. And so to my announcement... The typical hooting yard readers are a family of God-fearing Republicans from the state of Arkansas. They are Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, and their children Joshua, Jana, John David, Jill, Jessa, Jinger, Joseph, Josiah, Joy Anna, Jedediah, Jeremiah, Jason James, Justin Jackson, and Johanna. If you visit their website, splendidly named www.jimbob.info, I think you'll agree that they're wholesome, toothsome and quite, quite lovely in every way. I was a little perturbed that they make no mention of their fanatical devotion to all things Hooting Yard on their site, until it occurred to me that even the happiest of families has a dark secret gnawing away at their vitals, And for the Duggars, it is clearly Dobson, Blodgett, fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol, the gods of Gar, and all of your other amusing characters. My work is done, but another stack of breakfast cereal and butcher's pencil vouchers wouldn't go amiss. Jim Bob dot info. It's a um, very, very interesting website. And you can see all of the 16 um, children whose names begin with J. Anyway, this is a story called Cake and Pastry Person. Many, many years ago, so long ago that you were probably not yet born, there was a cake and pastry person who drove a van around Pang Hill and Blister Lane, tooting a horn in the summer afternoons, for it seemed the sun was always shining in those faraway days. Those were times when children still bought cakes and pastries from a van, a big Pantechnicon painted yellow and red and pink and mauve and black. It was also, of course, the time when people worshipped the hideous bat god Fatso and walked the earth in fear of his flapping wings and his shrill squeaking that churned up the innards and pierced the soul. Where, in other lands, the roads would be lined by milestones telling the distance to an important town or port, here there were hundreds and hundreds of huge stone carvings of Fatso the visible reminder of his terrible and terribly haphazard power. Children were protected from the worst of his wrath, for Fatso the bat god did not fully reveal himself until a person reached adulthood. For tinies, the stone statues were simply part of the landscape, like trees or kiosks or pneumatic power towers. Although the bat god is forgotten today, everyone remembers the resin hoops that were the favourite plaything of young and old alike. I'm sure you know the words to the old song. We skip and frolic and loop the loops along Pang Hill with our resin hoops. We skip and frolic on Blister Lane with our resin hoops we loop again. Sometimes children would play at tossing their hoops over a fatso statue, giving the bat god a necklace. Everyone knew that a hoop's resin, once resting around the stone neck of the god, would begin immediately to rot, and that by the next morning nothing would remain but a squelchy, foul-smelling string of glutinous goo, drippity-dripping onto the ground, where soon vile, prickly, poisonous weeds would sprout. These were the roads up and down which the cake and pastry person's van would trundle, slowing to a halt whenever a little crowd of tinies gathered, each child clutching a cake and pastry token. In an excited gaggle, the children would exchange their tokens for cakes and pastries, and the cake and pastry person would collect the tokens in his token tin, which rattled when he shook it, and shake it he did, to hear that pleasing rattle. He beamed at the children as he handed out his cakes and pastries and took their tokens and rattled his token tin. But an acute observer might see that the beam was a false, rictus grin, for the cake and pastry person was plunged in melancholy. He remembered the innocent times when he too had been able to eat cakes and pastries without a care Now, like every adult in the land, his days were consumed by a desperate need to placate Fatso, the hideous bat god. It seemed that Fatso needed more and more tokens every day, and the cake and pastry person was seldom satisfied until his tin was so crammed with tokens that it no longer rattled. Only then could he cease driving his Pantechnicon round and round the roads and park by the perimeter fence of the Swan Sanctuary and take his tin on foot along the lane to Fatso's cave and wait with all the other supplicants for night to fall and for the Bat God's lieutenants to shimmer into view. When at last his turn came, he would empty the tin into the outstretched of a greedy and grasping lieutenant and plead for benediction, but benediction rarely came. Tomorrow, a bigger tin, more tokens, thus was he commanded in the horrible, high pitched squeals of Fatso's inhuman myrmidons. One by one, then, they would flit away with their booty into the deepest, darkest recesses of the cave and the cake and pastry person and all the other hunched and sorry believers would traipse away back to their huts and shacks and cabins and try to snatch a few brief hours of sleep before dawn broke and they faced a new day with redoubled effort. As they slept, the resin hoops rotted on the statues of their bat-god. Poisonous weeds crept and curled along the ground. And in the nurseries, under cover of the night, tiny children giggled with delight, happy that they had bolstered Fatso's power for another day, sure in the knowledge that tomorrow would bring more looping-the-loop with their resin hoops, more sunshine and more cakes and pastries from the cake-and-pastry person's yellow-and-red-and-pink-and-mauve-and-black cake-and-pastry van. Technical problems of us withering in the heat here means that um, you may not have heard me um, the full address of the Hooting Yard website earlier. It's hooting.yard.users.btopenworld.com Meanwhile, um, I'm going to read to you about Shem, Ham, Japheth and Mini Crumlop. Those two great modernists, James Joyce and Virginia Woolf, were exact contemporaries, both born in 1882 and dying in 1941. Their reputations have survived, indeed prospered in the 21st century. The same cannot be said of a third writer who shares those dates of birth and death, the now forgotten Minnie Crunlop. But was Minnie more modern than Jim and Ginny? Some critics think so. Here is Taddeus Glob. Cronlop was a monomaniac who struck to a preposterously limited subject matter, but I'm convinced that her name will ring down the ages, outlasting Homer, Beowulf and the Bible. Praise indeed from the man who dismissed as clots and nincompoops nearly every writer of note from the 17th century onward. Glob is certainly correct to refer to Cronlop's preposterously limited range, in fact, all she ever wrote were stories featuring the sons of Noah. It's true that she placed Shem, Ham and Japheth in an astonishing variety of settings, but no other characters feature in her work, except for occasional appearances by a fictionalised version of Suez Canal visionary Ferdinand de Lesseps, 1805-1894. to 1894. If her work is unconventional, so too her career – Minnie Crumlop only began to write in the last decade of her life, on the 14th of January 1931, to be precise. It was on the cold morning of this day that she wrote, from beginning to end, the famous story Shem, Ham and Japheth join a knitting circle, which appeared in the inaugural issue of Mess Bang's popular magazine of catastrophic flood fiction. Cronlop had met the self-styled delugist Orthek messbang a few months previously. They had a passionate yet enigmatically unconsummated affair. Among the sweet nothings he whispered into her ear was his plan to publish two periodicals devoted to his pet topic, one containing fiction and the other fact. After a stroll among the bougainvilliers and fountains, Cronlop promised to pen a story based vaguely on Noah's Ark. On her way home, she bought a Bible. She'd never read it before. Locating the text she needed in Genesis, she tore it out and threw the handsome volume into a waste chute. Over the next week, she memorised the story of the flood and thus began her singular literary career. Messbang's magazines folded after just one issue each. He swept into Minnie Cronlop's parlour to announce their failure, only to find her scribbling away at her second tale, Shem and De Lesseps go pig hunting. Messbang. Darling, I am ruined. My periodicals are no more. Cease writing. Cronlop. Oh, dearest one, I could not stop even if I wanted to, for I feel the muse inspiring me. I am going to spend the rest of my life writing strange little stories about Noah's three sons. It is my destiny. Mess bang. Love of my life, have you taken leave of your senses? Only I would publish your deranged jottings, and now I am undone. These were Orthec Messbang's last words. He flung himself from Minnie Cronlop's window on the fifth floor of her shabby apartment building and was impaled on an iron spike in the street below. So consumed was Cronlop with the vivacity of her tale-telling that she did not hear the ungodly siren of the ambulance which carted her lover to the morgue. She remained at her escritoire, pencilling in a frenzy until her second story was finished, when night was drawing in. Messbang had abandoned a wife, now his widow, in Dusseldorf or a similar city, who took some solace in the fact that his final words were prophetic, for it seemed that no one was interested in publishing Minnie Cronlop's second story, nor nor the third, nor the fourth. She had hit her stride now, and spent every Thursday writing, from dawn till dusk, conjuring new adventures for her heroes. She had plucked the three sons of Noah from that overcrowded ark, and was pitching them into new and dazzling adventures. Shem and Ham visit the glue factory, Japheth is buried alive, and De Lesseps and Ham and the mysterious Bag of Soil were all written before the end of the year. Cronlop occasionally tried hawking them to publishers without success, but every door slammed in her face seemed to inspire her to new heights of invention. She continued to eke a living by boiling and darning flags, as she had done since her release from prison just before the Great War. Critics today are understandably coy about Minnie Cronlop's life before she became a writer. The received wisdom is that her criminal past has nothing to tell us about her work, that we can separate the murderous psychopath from the storyteller as if they were two distinct crumblops. Indeed, it's difficult to square the gore-drenched cutthroat skulking in the alleyways of Dubrovnik, or somewhere like Dubrovnik, with the pencil-wielding genius of the shabby apartment building. We must, I think, be grateful that King Vincenzo announced an amnesty just before the war. Cynics say the king expected all those he released to perish on the battlefields, and most of them did. But Minnie Crunlop survived, for she spent the war years hiding in a hayloft near an orchard, creeping out at night to eat her fill of pears and gooseberries and drinking from a spigot by the side of a barn. Was this Hayloft Crumlop's Ark? She shared it with a pair of geese and a pair of stoats, or at least that's what she said later. But then she claimed to have named the geese Shem and Japheth and the stoats De Lesseps and Ham, and this is unlikely given that she was, as we have seen, Bible ignorant at this point. In her last illness, when her brain was a fuming, hallucinatory miasma, she told all sorts of stories about her time in the hayloft. Indeed, she spoke of little else. Incoherent babble it may have been, but clearly this period, after the killings and before the stories, was of great significance for her. Over the years, there have been attempts to convert the wartime sanctuary into a mini Cronlop museum or memorial library, But no one has ever been able to identify the actual site, given that there are literally dozens of haylofts in barns near orchards in the country. Curiously, her writings give no clues. Throughout the canon, there is no mention of any kind of agricultural building. The reader will find plenty of gaudy palaces, space stations, skyscrapers, futuristic pods, Transylvanian castles, urban dystopias and Victorian drawing rooms in Cronlop's fiction, but no barns or in farmyards. Nor will one find an ark, of course. The only story that nods in a seafaring direction is the elegaic A Rowing Boat and Its Oars, 1936 the first of Cronlop's works to win a prize. She had, at long last, found a publisher in the form of Dr Gillespie's pedantic register and gazette. Dr Gillespie was a fictional character who purported to edit and write most of this weekly periodical, which was heavily illustrated with mesotints by the mesotintist Rex Tint. It was Tint who recommended Cronlop to the genuine non-fictional editor, a secretive plutocrat with a piratical eye patch, who was to become her sole publisher. In the remaining four years of her active career, the tales poured out, some of them only 50 words long, some close to novellas. It was an age of anxiety as Europe edged once again towards war. Minnie Cronlop took to sporting an eye patch in homage to her mentor. She went to visit de Lesseps' Suez Canal, where she wrote the groundbreaking Ham's Rakish Sneer. She penned anonymous fan letters to Hollywood actor Claude Rains. Her shabby apartment building was given a new lick of paint, or paints, all mauve and yellow and a startling cerulean blue. She pondered writing a new type of story, one that would feature Neville Chamberlain, but abandoned it after a long and earnest discussion with Rex Tint in the dining room of a majestic hotel, where the pair of them ate soup, crackers and potted paste, before running away without paying the bill. She exchanged her collection of pencils for a pen with an unbreakable nib and promptly broke the nib. She was praised in an essay by Capisco, And Larch painted her portrait, and King Vincenzo's son, the new king, also called Vincenzo, presented her with a medal. She wrote a marvellous, tragic, tear-stained tale called Japheth is Buried Alive, Again. Her hair turned white. And then on the 14th of January 1941, ten years to the day since her writing career began, she was engulfed by a daze, a daze that could have been mistaken for a coma, were it not that within her days she babbled incessantly about the hayloft, hayloft and her geese and her stoats and little else, and she never again picked up her broken pen nor any of the pencils she had retrieved from a rubbish tip, and she babbled away in her daze for 40 days and 40 nights Ark time and then she passed away, and now she is all but forgotten, so you must mark her name and mark it well Minnie Cronlop. Finally this week, if, like me, you harbour ambitions to be a sort of 21st century Madame Blavatsky figure, offering an all-embracing synthesis of belief systems to the credulous and wealthy, it's worth keeping an eye on the Religion News Blog. Put Religion News Blog into Google and you'll find it. After all, in a God-eat-God world... You can stay one step ahead by clutching every new twitching tendril of faith to your capacious Blavatsky's bosom as soon as it appears. Recent news items alert us to some must-have additions to your cult. So, for example, ensure that your sect incorporates a blot, a sacrificial meat offering to the ancient Norse gods, as practised by adherents of Asatru. You might also want to smash statues and tear up baptismal gowns and wedding veils, like the devotees of Crescendo en Gracia, for whom 59-year-old Puerto Rican José Luis de Jesus Miranda is Christ. Like Jesus of Nazareth, he wears fine suits and diamond-encrusted rings, drives a 7-series BMW, and until recently lived in a 5,000-square-foot Miramar home with Corinthian columns and vaulted ceilings. He also travels with a battalion of guards who wear dark suits and conspicuous earpieces. But the running cost of this security detail is only about $300,000 per annum, so it's completely affordable if you tithe your followers at the appropriate level. That's enough about gods for this week. More more about gods and other things, squirrels, bats, usual stuff, next week. Bye-bye.